yourself sit in a way that's relaxed and at ease as you listen. No need to remember anything particularly, no quiz at the end. Um, More a kind of contemplative listening to notice if what you hear or what parts of it strike you as true or something that you already know, your own innate and inherent wisdom. The rest of it you can just let go by. And so what I'd like to talk about tonight, given that it's just after New Year's, is some of the Dharma teachings on how to navigate the changing of the years, and particularly the teachings of Anicca, which are a, that's a Sanskrit or Pali word for change. I got a, I got a message from an editor at, I think it was Cosmo magazine some years ago, asking me for their New Year's issue if I could do a, a, a Buddhist piece on how to make New Year's resolutions more permanent. Um, and I said, well, permanence isn't like the Buddhist thing, actually. You have to look someplace else for that. But it is kind of wild. Here it's 2014, at least... For me, the year 2000, remember Y2K and everybody was getting worried about the meltdown of every computer in the whole... It seemed like it just happened, you know? It just spins around so quickly. And what could I say? Happy Perihelion Week, for those of you who didn't know that. This, a few days ago, was the day that the Earth is closest to the sun. Now, it turns out that even though we're a little closer to the fireplace, that's not really what changes the summer and winter. It's the Earth's axis that does it, but I hope you enjoyed the, you know, coming close to our neighbor, star. And as I spoke about before the new year, in December, had the opportunity to uh, lead a retreat together with Ramdas. Um, and the theme of the retreat was finding grace amid suffering or transforming suffering into grace. Um, and it was very moving, quite touching to be with people often who came because they were in the middle of great difficulty. Um, and Ramdas was uh, really a kind of exemplar of love. He was just so loving and kind to everybody, no matter what they were going through. Um, And at the same time, he wasn't afraid of their suffering. People who'd come who had lost children or who had various tragedies, and he would love them, but he wouldn't... um, He said, I'm not going to get into the melodrama of it. I'm just going to love you. It was really kind of wild. So this from an Indian saint, he says, Go ahead, light your incense, ring your bells, Call out to the, can- to the gods, light your incense, ring your bells, call out to the gods, but watch out, for the gods will come, and they will fire up their forge and put you on the amble, and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So some people enter spiritual life like looking for some, you know, some force or some spirit to come and help them. Um, I don't even think you have to call out, frankly. They come, you know. 
they do. And what you see as we go through this turning of the calendar year, and you take your seat in meditation, there's your breath breathing itself and your thoughts appearing and disappearing, and your feelings coming and going, is that you live in a world of change. The ineluctable modality of the visible and audible um, is James Joyce's description of it. <coughs> Little Breath, writes W.S. Merwin, who was our poet, National Poet Laureate, Little Breath, breathe me gently, row me gently, for I am a river I am learning to cross. And so you take your seat and you feel the life breath of your body and then feel that you are not only breathing your body, but in some way you're part of the cycles and breathing of life itself. Now, I'm very aware, as many of you are, that this is the driest year past on record and that there hasn't been any rain and looking to see on the uh, websites about weather prediction that it looks like there might not be rain for another month or more because of the high pressure that's uh, complex that's over the North Pacific. Um, and you walk out on the land and everything says it's thirsty. But it's more than that. You know, you think that global climate change and so forth is going to affect Bangladesh or maybe Staten Island, but not Marin, not San Francisco. Guess what? It's us. It's our earth. And we're a part of this. And our, our interconnection demands of us a kind of care and stewardship that's not separate from Bangladesh or Staten Island or Sausalito. I was on Mount Tam a couple of years ago. Um, I'd gone up to the top because it was a day that um, astronomically that had the, the transit of Venus across the face of the sun. I don't know if anybody remembers that. but And Fort went up with some friends and fortunately there was someone up there who'd set up quite a large telescope. So you could look in the telescope, and there was the disk of the sun with all the little kind of flaming things out, like kids draw in their drawings, right? And a few sunspots. And there was this little tiny black round disk, maybe about one, I don't know, one fortieth of the diameter of the sun, this little circle that was slowly moving its way across the disk of the sun. And somehow I could feel like, oh, these are, are, these are the little planet balls like we're on that are going around, that are going around this star. You could somehow get that feeling in looking at it. Um, and that's what we're doing. You know, we're taking our voyage around our star. So you sit. You come to sit in meditation. And you come to quiet your mind, steady yourself, soften the heart, maybe become a little bit more present, reduce the stress. And as you sit and meditate and begin to listen in a deeper way, you notice that wherever you put your attention is in change. The river of thoughts, the feelings, the perceptions, all the things, the sensations of the body. And not only are they in change, but they're ungovernable that you might think, I don't want those thoughts, right? Or those feelings I like and those ones I don't like, or I don't want those sensations. Does it listen? 
It has no pride and it will do anything, right? And so you're there with this river of experience that's unfolding, which is your mysterious human incarnation. And you notice that it actually is a river, that it's changing. The quieter you get, the more you feel the flow of change, the fact that it's ungovernable and actually it's insubstantial and in some fundamental way it's unreliable because it keeps, even the best of it is there for a little while and it turns into something else. And so you don't own it, you get to experience it, but it's not yours. And so here you are, you take your seat in the mystery of being a human being, this human incarnation, and you notice the body breathes, but it's not just the body that expands and contracts, Um, I mean the breath, the heart pumps and expands and contracts, the cerebral spinal fluid does the, you know, um, you'll notice your mind opens and closes. Anybody noticed ever a closed mind? Have you ever met one? (laughs) You know, everything opens and closes. And the point isn't that you're supposed to, okay, now I'm going to get it open, I'll love everything, I'll be completely open, and it'll never change. (laughs) Ah, That would be death, right? Things change, and the point is to take your seat in the mystery of this change and to allow your awareness to be like the depths of the ocean, which is an image that the Buddha used. And on the surface of the ocean are storms and waves and rainbows and maybe even, you know, cargo ships or whatever, um, and sailboats and, uh, and all of the things that happen on the surface, which can be acknowledged and, and actually valued But at the same time, there is a dimension of life, of awareness, that you can discover, tune into, rest in, that is silent and deep and embracing of all that, but also with a perfect balance with it, a kind of wisdom that says, yes, these are the inevitable changes on the surface, and here's the stillness of awareness underneath it all. The eight worldly winds that are in Buddhist psychology, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. I mean, even in the room tonight, I noticed the windows weren't cracked and the top wasn't open, so it got really stuffy. Then Sean turned on the blower, then it got really cold, right? What do you want, stuffy or cold, right? So now it's getting stuffy again. Pretty soon it'll turn on and it'll get cold again. I want it perfect. I just want it this way, and I don't want it to change. Sorry, wrong planet. So here you have this human body, and let's get real about it. Um, The Buddha says, Did you never see in this world a man or a woman 80, 90, 100 years old, frail, crooked as a gable roof, bent down, resting on crutches with tottering steps, broken teeth, infirm. And did the thought never occur to you that you too are subject to this? That's a kind of a serious thing to say, isn't it? Um, But the wild thing is that it's true. That's really the wild thing, that we have this human life and it's temporary, and our body is a work in progress that we contend and love and care for and jog and stuff like that and exercise, 
but also it gets older and it gets sick and it does what it does. And you sit quietly and you notice the rhythms of your body, pleasure and pain and sickness and health. Or you notice your feelings. And the feelings are like uh, a waterfall. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi talked about how when he went to Yosemite, he said, the biggest waterfall I saw was 1,340 feet. And the water looked like a looked like a curtain when I saw it coming down. And then as I got closer, I saw the curtain was made of little individual drops. And then I thought, what a hard thing it must be for that little drop that was part of the river to be all by itself falling down 1,340 feet. And he said, and it felt like our life in that way. We come out of the river of being, <clears throat> and then we're separate for a while from that river, of that mysterious river that we're all born from. And we feel ourselves separate, and it's not so easy. He says, and then, and then we rejoin the river. Let me see if I can find that other passage, part of that passage of what he says. Um, you do not realize... You're separated by birth from the oneness, like the drop of water. You don't realize that you're one with the river and with the universe, and so you have fear. Whether it's separated into drops or not, water is water. Life and death are the same thing. When we realize this deeply, we have no fear anymore. We have no difficulty with our life. He goes on, but it's not so easy. Your practice of meditation can cultivate this understanding for you. For when you find this deep understanding, even though you have difficulty falling upright from the top of the waterfall to the bottom of the mountain, you will enjoy your life. And so there's some sense that when you know that things change and accept it or find your composure in it, as Suzuki Roshi goes on, when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, you find yourself in nirvana. That nirvana isn't in the Himalayas or it's not in <coughs> some ancient text or some other kind of esoteric imagination. It's the invitation to find peace in your own heart where you are amidst change. You can't stop the waves but you can learn to surf, someone said. That's kind of meditation 101, right? And the interesting thing is that you sit in meditation and you feel liking and disliking and pleasant and pain, and first you try to rearrange the furniture, but all you have to do is sit for not very long and you realize that it's kind of useless because the thoughts keep trooping out of emptiness and doing what they want and the feelings keep coming and the perceptions and your views on things. Have you noticed... I mean, you have views, right? And they're just that. I remember in Psychology 101, professor fills three buckets with water. Okay? One bucket has hot water you can just barely put your hand in. One bucket in the middle, room temperature. One bucket is full of ice and water. Invites the unwitting first Psychology 101 student volunteer to come up and place their hands in the two outer buckets and hold them there as long as they can. Okay, get one of the young guys. I can do this, right? Hand in the cold bucket, hand in the, hand in the hot bucket as long as you can, okay? And after 30 seconds or so, it's very hot and very cold. 
pull their hands out, and then place their two hands into the middle bucket. And then there's always this really funny expression on their face, whoever it is, the young man, young woman, doesn't matter, because their hands are touching. And one hand feels the water is really cold, and the other hand feels like the water is really hot. In the same bucket of water. You understand, right? We make opinions and views and perceptions, and they're just tentative. And a little while later, you were a libertarian, and then you decide, well, maybe you'll try being a Democrat or vice versa, or Republican, or whatever it happens to be. So meditation is an invitation to rest in mindful awareness or loving awareness and to see from the wisdom eye or from the heart of understanding that to be incarnate is to live in a river. The Buddha described our life as five rivers, rivers of feelings and perceptions and thoughts and sensations, and that that's what you are. And when you see this and sense it, and really understand it, you become more gracious. And so these, the statuary, the kind of images, there's the Buddha seated there with his hand touching the earth, and the witness of the earth, in the midst of all the difficulties of life, or Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, sitting with this great composure. They're really symbols of an inner graciousness or stillness amidst the joys and the sorrows that make up life. It's been really apparent to me, um, maybe because I'm getting older, but I recently, in just in the last week or two, I visited a friend whose house burned down in the Big Sur Pfeiffer Ridge fire, went to see their house, and they'd had this beautiful home, two stories filled with artifacts and photographs and all that. Ash really nothing. It was a very hot fire, 33 homes were in, and there was nothing. It was there, and now it's not. That's really kind of wild, you know? And then six weeks or so ago, I got a call from my twin brother, who's a professor in Maine of genetics and population biology, and will explore all kinds of things, and he found out that he had myelofibrosis, which is a kind of blood cancer, and I was very worried. I am worried. Um, because he's sort of, sort of in the middle of it, and they say, well, life expectancy, maybe two years or something like that. Then he went down to the Harvard Medical School Cancer Center, and they said, well, you might be a candidate for stem cell replacement therapy, and so, but we have to find a match. So my brothers and I, I have, I have three brothers, and we all tried to see whether we were a genetic match, and two of us are, so I'll probably be his donor. And so from being really worried, because I love him very much, and I'm very touched by what he's going through as anybody, now it's like, oh, okay, maybe it'll be a bit better than we thought. I mean, if I'd thought that some weeks before, I would have been, oh, this is terrible, but it's better than it was, and it, it, and it might be all right. And then I have this friend who just, close friend who just lost their job, um, and then, you know, a little while later, uh, we've been trying to raise money to build this wonderful new community hall to replace the trailers that we're in. Um, and it's going very well. And we're about to start building in April after a long campaign. And a little Christmas check came in for half a million dollars anonymously. Oh, here. 
you know, thank you, hallelujah, right? And then these other friends who tried for a really long time to get pregnant and were unable to, got pregnant, and the pregnancy ended with this beautiful baby girl, you know, and it's fantastic. And then this other friend who I'm close to called, and it turns out that she's losing her memory, you know. And then Steve Stuckey, who is the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, a very dear, wonderful man. Um, he had, uh, about 12 weeks ago, um, pain and went in and they said, you have fourth stage pancreatic cancer. He died last week, I guess it was. And um, he did it with such dignity and he gave this talk about gratitude. He said, there's nothing I can do, so I might as well be grateful for all I've been given and all that I know and all the people that I love and such courage and straightforwardness. And then I guess I should, in honoring him, read his death poem here. Zen masters are supposed to write a death poem, you know, kind of make it a little classy way to exit. <laughs> he says, This human body truly is the entire cosmos. Each breath of mine is equally one of yours. Beautiful. My darling. This is a phrase that Thich Nhat Hanh uses, my darling, somehow this kind of intimacy. This tender abiding in my life is the fierce glowing fire of inner earth, linked with all pre-phenomena flashing to the distant horizon from right here now to just this. And now the horizon itself drops away. Bodhi, which means liberation. Bodhi Swaha. And so it's his, his last song, if you will. His last prayer. So we're all in the same boat. Is that the, maybe that's the right word. Um, of human life. And how are you going to live it? You could try to hold on and think that, well, if I do it right, I'll only have pleasure and not pain. I'll only have gain and not loss. I'll only have praise and not blame. Anybody succeed? <laughs> I know you worked at that for a while. Raise your hand, you can have your $8 back, right? <laughs> so after the, after the World Trade Centers um, collapsed, um, and after the first uh, week or two of all the emergency things died down, then there came a whole community of people who were working to uh, working on what was called the pile, all that was there to try to pull out both bodies and and uh, disentangle what had collapsed. It took about a year. And as the various construction workers and equipment and people went in to do it, there also grew a support community. A makeshift community of helpers sprang up around all of us who were working there. And there was a crew of, I don't know, 5,000 people who were working there. Helpers like proverbial grass blades poking through the pavement. And the stories are, are legendary. Giant vats of Cajun food cooked up by a crew that materialized from New Orleans. Truckloads of brand new boots do donated to workers whose own had virtually melted off. You know, 10,000 volunteers of every political stripe, income level, race, sexual persuasion, religion or no religion, had transubstantiated tragedy into an ad hoc affirmation of humanity's indestructible goodness. There was one fellow, Joseph Brady, 
a 55-year-old hard hat crane operator who had helped to build the World Trade Center when he was 21 and volunteered to pull up the wreckage. Like so many workers at the site, he'd been overwhelmed by the carnage sinking slowly to the curb after his first night under the savagely bright arc lamps, his head cradled in his hand. That's when the Salvation Army kids appeared, he remembered, in their sneakers with their pink hair and their belly buttons showing and bandanas trout around their faces. They came with water and cold towels and took my boots off and bathed my feet and put dry socks on. And then when I got to Houston Street, a bunch more of these kids all pierced and tattooed with multicolored hair had made a little makeshift stage, and they started to cheer as we came out. And that was it for me. I never identified with these people before, but I started crying, and I cried for four blocks. I can't, can't tell you. I was taken so off guard. As a construction worker, I've always been viewed as a pest, as rude, and now I was so touched by this. And I got home and saw my wife, and she said, Joe, are you okay? I said, sure. She said, well, go look in the mirror. And there I was, my filthy, dirty face, and just two clean lines rolling down each cheek. So there is suffering and loss. And there's also the grace of the human heart to say, yes, we'll take this inevitable change. This is what you get. You, you have um, 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows. You have the ocean of tears and the unbearable beauty of the world. Um, and to live wisely is to find your composure amidst it all. And my teacher, Ajahn Chah, his favorite phrase was maina in Thai, which means it's, it's uncertain, isn't it? He also would say then, relax. It's kind of the laughter of the wise. And in this famous story of him, when we were visiting, and it was a whole group of us, Joseph Goldstein and Mark Epstein, a friend from New York, a Buddhist teacher, and Ram Das, and a whole crew of us were visiting Anjan Chah, and that's when he held up this beautiful antique Chinese cup that he, someone had given him, and he was drinking from it. And he said, for me, the cup is already broken. He said, I know I could put it on the table, and by accident, my elbow would knock it off. You know, or someone will come along and move things and it will fall. And someday, he said, this is going to break. He said, so I know that. And therefore, I hold it. It's precious. I don't know how long I'll have it. I drink from it. I use it. I admire it. And when it's gone, it was already broken. And he just laughed. My nah, it's uncertain. <laughs> so he would say, things are uncertain. You can either hold on which doesn't help much, or you can relax. There are three rules for writing the great English novel, said Somerset Maugham. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. (laughs) Same for living your life. It's really more like Braille, that you open yourself to a new day, with its joys and its sorrows and its gain and its loss. I read a story of this couple that went up to, drove up 400 miles to go visit the, the biggest botanical garden in, in the eastern part of Canada. I guess it was outside of uh, Toronto. Um, and it had a, it was supposed to have an amazing collection of bonsai and bonsai trees and, 
and so forth. And they got there and there was this, this giant beautiful gate and the Synods had closed. And that was their weekend and they'd driven 400 miles. And so one of them got really upset. We came all this way, we should have checked. And, and he said his partner looked at it, just got really quiet and then decided to do some walking meditation and started to just walk around. And there was this 18 foot high Chinese decorated wall around, you know, and just started to walk, walk along it. And, and he said, after a while, I started to get annoyed. Like, you know, this is, this is you know, 250 acres. He's going to walk all the way around it. That's like some kind of pilgrimage or something. We came, it's closed. But I walked behind him, fuming a little bit, he said. And after we'd walked about three or 400 yards, all of a sudden, the gate, the fence, and all that just disappeared. It was only the facade, actually, and the rest of it had no fence around it at all. And we walk right in. And that's often the way it is, you know. You think it's a certain way, and then if you stay present, something else will open. And it does, and it always will this story told last time. In the Jewish mystical tradition, one great rabbi taught his disciples to memorize, reflect, contemplate, and place the teachings of the holy words on their heart. One day a student asked the rabbi why he always used the phrase, on your heart. The master replied, only the gods can put the teachings in your heart. Here we recite and learn and put them on the heart, hoping that someday, when your heart breaks, they will fall in. And so you sit, not in order to become, you know, a good meditator. You've failed at that already, mostly. So it's a, you actually sit to become present for your human life, you know, with a graciousness and a wisdom and a compassion. And as you do, you invite a kind of equanimity or inner peace that's possible for you as a human being. And you also invite what balances that, which is the great heart of compassion. Inner peace is the key, says the Dalai Lama. If you have inner peace, the external problems will not affect your deep sense of peace and tranquility. But with that peace, you look out and you see the world and there's continuing injustice and there's racism, and there's environmental destruction, and you can't turn yourself away from that. So you also open the heart of compassion. And these two, the compassion and the inner peace, become the way you navigate yourself through this mysterious human life. Having the stillness is helpful. William Butler Yeats we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. And so you become the mirror for others when you're still enough to see and they can see in that stillness the way things are. Now equanimity it's really important to say, is not indifference. That's called the near enemy to equanimity. Equanimity is a balance in the midst of all things, a stillness 
a spaciousness. It doesn't mean that praise and blame and gain and loss won't happen. When Suzuki Roshi was dying, he said, if when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know, no confusion in it. Maybe everyone will suffer with me. He said, but that's just suffering Buddha. Sun Buddha, Moon Buddha, Happy Buddha, Sad Buddha. He said, you should be grateful to have a limited life. If you had a limitless life, it would be a real problem for you. (laughs) If I suffer, that's just suffering Buddha, no confusion in it. And so you sit by the waterfall or you lie out under the stars at night. And I like to talk about how when I was younger, I would lie out on the grass and look at the stars at night on a really clear night and imagine that I was on the bottom of the earth. Because, I mean, top bottom, who knows, right? And that I was stuck to the earth like a big magnet, which is true from gravity, and that I was looking down into the cosmos and into the stars. being, And it gives, it's just beautiful. It's like, wow, look at that. You could take a swan dive down into the Milky Way. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote recently about having had a dream. And in the dream, he was invited to, be, to um, be a student in the class of this master professor. And so he decided to go to the class. He was really excited. And it turned out the professor was a professor of music. But when he got to the class, he discovered <clears throat> that the new students were each expected to perform when they went in to the room. And he, and he thought, but I, I don't play music. And then he realized, oh yes, I do have one musical instrument, his favorite actually. He said the the one instrument that a Zen monk has is their bell. And so he reached in his robes and pulled out one of those little bells and went up to the front of the class, which he calls, by the way, the mindfulness bell. And he uses it and describes how, in his community in fact, every kind of random, every 15 or 20 minutes, someone will and whatever people are doing, they just stop. If they're cooking or they're speaking with one another, they're painting or creating or online, they just stop the mindfulness spell. Oh, here we are. You should try that in your workplace, in your family. (laughs) He recommends it. So he said, all of a sudden, there I was in my dream, and they said, you have to play a musical instrument. I thought, panic, what can I do? And then I realized, oh yes, I have an instrument. (laughs) And he rang his bell. It's really that simple. To find your composure just where you are. And it doesn't mean you change the circumstances. Because often you can't. Sometimes you can and you certainly want to stand up for justice and serve in the ways that you're able to. It makes the heart feel like your life has a value and purpose. But underneath it is this great sense of knowing that things have their seasons. And I'm watching my daughter, who's now 29 years old, and 
given how long people take to get through their education and, and so forth, the cycles um, of young people uh, in our culture at this time, it's sort of gotten later and later, and it has, you know. And so I'm watching, she's got three or four different friends, some of who I know well from her child, who are either just got married or are about to get married or got engaged. That's all happening for her cohorts in their late 20s or around 30. And then a couple at the leading edge got pregnant or having kids. And I can just sort of, I can see the turning of the seasons of generations through her. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And so when you have equanimity, what you also have is trust. I was in San Quentin prison a month or so ago for the graduation from what grew out of the Spirit Rock Insight Prison Project. Now it's um, run by Jacques Verdun. And there were 50 men who'd gone through a year's training of um, mindfulness, um, anger management, um, uh, very deep self-reflection, um, m- fearless moral inventory, to use a 12-step phrase. Um, and they were in their ha- caps and gowns. They stood up and they read vows that they would never again be violent in this world in any way. They stood up and they also apologized to this whole gathering of some hundreds of people, governor, center, representative, various other people, um, with such eloquence, saying, you know, we were misguided, we were confused, we were, um, and we'll never again do this. And after they apologized, then Luis Rodriguez, this great Latino poet and good friend, stood up, read an amazing poem about the freedom of spirit in prison no matter what. Um, and then he apologized to them. He said, we owe you an apology too for many of you growing up as children in a society filled with um, racism and intolerance and injustice and poverty and addiction and the circumstances you grow up in. So we accept your apology and we offer ours to you as well. And you could have wept in that room. But the beautiful thing was to see that here were people that would have ostensibly been thrown away, were, um, who spoke so eloquently and who felt so trustworthy. A friend of mine who was part of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission said this felt like the same thing in some very deep way. So it's possible to trust with this vast equanimity to see the way things are and find your composure in it. As Krishnamurti says, when the mind is still and tranquil, neither seeking nor expecting anything, then it's possible to see what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, not your efforts to be free. And so you become free not because you want or you change yourself or something else, but because you see this is the way human incarnation is. And you find the trust to rest in awareness, in loving awareness, and say yes, to embrace the joys and the sorrows, and to keep your heart open in the midst of it. Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, it says in the Diamond Sutra, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a phantom, a rainbow, a dream. Like a bubble in a stream, says the Buddha. 
So equanimity brings a kind of ease and joy. And I remember again in this retreat with Ramdas, when anybody said anything that was really wise and heartfelt, he would look up and he would say, yum, yum. That was his response. Yum, yum, yum. Thank you, Ramdas. Yum, yum. Yum, yum. Sometimes he'd weep. So here was the experience of Martina, a physician and an administrator whose dietary oversight often took her to the basement of the huge medical school hospital where she worked. There she got to know Annabelle, a Haitian woman in her 60s who had worked there for 25 years doing hard work in the huge kitchen. <clears throat> she was now supporting seven grandchildren. Petite and strong, Annabelle had lived through many long years of hardship and loss. Yet each time Martina asked Annabelle how she was doing, Annabelle would turn up her face with a bright smile and say not okay or fine or even great. She would say, wonderful. It was audacious. And for her, it was true. You could feel it. Down in the basement, endless hard work, tough life, and wonderful. And to Martina, Annabelle's voice became like the temple bell. Any day she was having a hard time, she could hear in the background or down in the basement, wonderful. So equanimity doesn't mean you become depressed. It actually invites this vastness to say, you're part of this huge human dance on this earth, and you can be at peace with it and trust it. Now, equanimity needs to be balanced with compassion. And compassion isn't the compassion of self-pity where you feel sorry for yourself. You do have your losses and you need to grieve them honorably and feel them and honor them. My friend Maladoma Somme talked about American streets being full of the ungrieved dead the fact that you live in a culture where people don't know how to feel and grieve deeply. So to find equanimity doesn't mean that you cut off feelings, but you actually allow them, and then they become instead of, oh, this happened to me, poor me, which makes them very personal, self-pity, they become what's called tears of the way, because you carry the beauty and the sorrow of humanity, and your heart is open. And I was in Los Angeles recently and talking to this woman who I know, Miranda, whose son was killed, um, murdered some years ago. And she um, now works in the shelter for homeless migrants on her days off, um, particularly working with these young guys who, you know, um, came looking for work and so forth. And she said, you know, some of them are the age my son was, and I can't be there for him, but I can be there for them. Sort of, he becomes in their place. So when I talked about the Big Sur fire, you remember that there was a fire not so far from here in Point Reyes a few years ago, right? In, um, well, it was about in the 90s, this devastating fire on the Point Reyes. It, and it turned out that four older teenage boys from Point Reyes had camped on Mount Vision overnight illegally and built a campfire and buried it under dirt when they left in the morning and caused a fire that destroyed 12,000 acres and burned 50 homes. The helicopter saved the town of Point Reyes with water from the bay. Um, 
loss of wildlife, you know, the coyote and deer and bobcats, like a bomb fell if you could see it. Um, and uh, the San Francisco Chronicle columnist John Carroll published a letter from a reader a few weeks after the fire. The writer described the heroism of the firefighters, the community's round-the-clock efforts to save what could be saved, <clears throat> and the generosity and compassion that came out of every part of the community nearby um, that we've come to expect after natural or man-made disasters. The four teenage boys who accidentally started the fire turned themselves in early on with their parents beside them. So how do you jiggle a miracle out of rage, terror, ash, grief, teenage boys? A firefighter had written a letter to a local paper, which the Chronicle letter described, about how carefully the boys had tried to put out their fire. They thought they'd extinguish the flames, but the embers were still burning underground. The boys hadn't known that this could be a fire danger, so they left. After that, even as town people continued to share their loss and pain, they also told stories of their worst teenage mistakes and transgressions that they had done as well. We rarely think our way out of these tight, dark places. Sometimes as a community, though, we take an action together and somehow something gives. I love the pun in that. There's one action all grateful and grieving communities take, holding a picnic where speeches are given, tears shed, sighs heaved, everyone overeats, and all that sneaky extra breath helps people start to breathe again. A picnic was held in Point Reyes to honor the firefighters and the whole town turned out. The president of the Board of Firefighters gave a speech, but at the end he digressed from what you might have expected him to say. He talked about how in ancient times, people who did damage to a town were sent to live outside its walls, beyond the pale or a boundary, beyond community, beyond inclusion and protection. He mentioned the four young men who had started the Mount Vision fire and that he had heard that their families were thinking of moving away. He thought the town should make it clear to the families that they should stay, that they were wanted, that they were needed. There was sustained applause from the whole community that had gathered there. People whose houses had burned down came up to the speaker to say they agreed with the plan. The town wanted these young men inside the PAL, inside the ring of protection. So what seemed to be happening is that this community, which had just fought so stubbornly to stave itself, has turned almost without missing a beat to try to save the future of these four young men. You are caught in an inescapable, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied together in a single garment of destiny. And so we take our seat when we meditate in the midst of this mysterious, ever-changing human world of joys and sorrows. And how will you meet it? With a closed heart, clinging, afraid, it's going to change anyway. Or can you bow to the joys and the sorrows? Can you say yes to this and this? Can you stand up for justice and work to serve the earth, but to do so with a peaceful heart, to bring your gifts where you plant seeds of goodness and love? It's possible, you know. It's one of my most favorite things in the Buddhist teaching where the Buddha says, 
in instructing people over these years, he said, if it were not possible for you to train the heart and mind and live in a compassion and compassionate and liberated way, I would not teach you to do so. But just because it is possible for you, I offer these teachings. And this is why you can see 90-year-old widows committed to tending small flowers in spring, 10-year-olds with very little to eat to care, caring for stray kittens, holding them to their skinny chests, and painters going blind, paint more, and composers going deaf write great symphonies. For as you give yourself to life, it floods through you. And this is what you are invited to do. You take your seat in meditation and find within you that spirit of the great heart of compassion and the equanimity that sees the dance of the seasons and bow to it and say, yes, here we are. Let me make something really beautiful of this, make something really magnificent of this. So in this year that started, get yourself a little mindfulness bell. <sighs> Maybe one at work, one in the kitchen, one in the uh, one in the car. That's right. Take the time to sit quietly. Yes, walk by the ocean and walk in the mountains and listen to beautiful music. And, but also take the time to do nothing, just to sit and come back to yourself and bring this loving awareness that's deep, much deeper than the waves of joy and sorrow, the waves of the ocean. Rest in the depths of equanimity and the great heart of compassion. Remember that it's possible. And then you can bring it as a gift to whatever, whatever you touch. So let's sit for a moment.
So I want to thank you for your kind attention and also for your generosity and those of you who were here at our Monday night right around Christmas time, we collected I think a couple thousand dollars or more that went to the soup kitchen on B Street in San Rafael for folks to eat based on your kindness. Um, I also want to say that I'll be traveling now. I go to the East Coast for a little bit and then <clears throat> we'll be leading a, a fundraising trip to Burma and then going on to India in February and March. So I won't be here for a while and you'll have all kinds of cool people come in. Um, for those of you um, who were able to come on Monday night, real, some really wonderful teachers they had. And on our trip to Burma through this foundation that I work on, we are going to get to meet with Aung San Suu Kyi. We're also going to, I'm going to be able to meet with some of the Buddhist elders who are standing up for tolerance and um, uh, mutual respect, um, which is because there's been some conflict between um, some, how do you put it, Buddhists behaving badly, basically. <laughs> some, there's 500,000 monks and there's a very small group of them that are, that are um, kind of fomenting violence. And so now the other elders are beginning to stand up and kind of looking for ways to support them from outside the country as well. So um, have a blessed, beautiful 2014, wonderful year. And uh, let's end with a very simple chant and then go out into the winter evening. And the chant is this. In India, when you meet someone, you put your hands together and say namaste as a greeting, which means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are. And the root of the word namaste in Sanskrit is the word namo, which means to bow to or pay respects to. So what I'd like us to do is to chant namo nine times. And as you do, you can feel what you want to bow to. And it might be to someone that you love or something that inspires you, or it might be to bow to the sorrows or suffering of some person or circumstance with compassion. Um, you'll know what you're called to do, and then we'll go out into the evening. Na mo na
And may you live with a compassionate heart and a deep sense of inner well-being and peace. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.